asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I'm Matt. And today we're talking about growing up on 44 cents a day to becoming a world traveler with Christy Shen. Yeah, Joel. Christy Shen, man, she has an amazing story. She actually grew up in China, and her family survived on 44 cents a day. But somehow she managed to become financially independent at age 31, becoming Canada's youngest retiree. And now, having achieved financial independence, she and her husband Bryce, they travel around the world. Christy writes about money on her site, Millennial Revolution, and shares her story in the new book she wrote with her husband called Quit Like a Millionaire. So, Christy, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Christy, every uh, week on this podcast, Matt and I drink a craft beer because it, it's meaningful to us. Today on the show, we're drinking something called Blood Orange Goza by Drotworks, and a, a listener race sent it to us. So, I wanted to ask you because we intentionally drink a beer on every episode, we're saving for the future, but also prioritizing the here and now. What's your splurge? What's your beer equivalent and something that you're willing to spend a little bit more money on today, even while prioritizing saving for the future? That is a really good question. I would have to say massages. And the funny thing is, when I come back home, massages are more expensive. It's like 100 bucks an hour, whatever it is. But the funny thing is, I just realized that when I go to Thailand, it's not even a splurge because massages are $10 in Thailand. So I would say massages when I come back home because then you, know, you get addicted to massages in Thailand, so you can't not have them once you go back to visit family. So that, that's my advice. 
Yeah, so I visited Thailand a couple years ago, and I completely agree. I was there for a week, and I think <laughs> I got five massages. I, they were literally oh like seven gosh. or eight dollars a piece. It was incredible. I'm totally jealous of both of you right now because I think that's something. If I was like uber rich, I would totally have my personal masseuse that would show up every morning. Yes, I, yeah. I kind of woke up or didn't wake up because I think massages put me to sleep. But <laughs> <laughs> you have not lived until you've had a two-hour massage. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. I, I have not yeah. lived then because I have not had one of those. <laughs> There's something about the Thai massage too that I appreciate so much. They're stretching you at the same time. It's kind oh, of, yeah. it's it's just this amazing thing where they're hitting the pressure points. They're stretching you out nice. nicely. It's better than just a table massage that I've had in the States by far. So yeah, definitely missing Thailand right now. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. And we've gotten massages in other parts of Southeast Asia. It just does not compare to Thai masseuses. I think just the way that they're trained, it's pretty consistent. You can go to any massage place and it's pretty similar in terms of quality. That's what I found. One interesting tidbit about Thai massages. When we were in Chiang Mai, they have a few different locations where you can get massaged by a former prisoner. It's this kind of rehabilitation program for huh. for former Thai prisoners and they're giving out pretty inexpensive massages, but they're really good. It was the place to go. Plus, I'm sure those guys have like really big, strong hands, right? <laughs> it, was actually, it was actually Thai women prisoners, <laughs> right. but yeah. <laughs> All right, Christy. So we need to start out by hearing about your childhood. You grew up vastly different than, than Joel and I did. For example, you weren't buying Legos or troll dolls from the Toys R Us down the street, right? That's not what you're doing. <laughs> I was like, what is a Toys R Us? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'd love to hear more about your childhood. For sure. Okay. So I grew up in a village in China. And back then, at one point, my family lived on 44 cents a day. And apparently, that's actually not that uncommon in my village because back then in China, they would, it was just climbing out of the cultural revolution that my parents had gone through. And so 84% of the population was actually in poverty, defined as being able to only spend less than a dollar US a day. When you wash yourself, it's basically a bucket of water. There's no Toys R Us. Your toys are basically just digging around. Like I was digging around in a medical waste heap with my friends and we found a bunch of elastic bands and we made a Chinese skipping rope and it was super fun. And I didn't realize there was anything wrong with that because that's what everyone else was doing. And I tell this to my friends now and they, they're horrified, but my parents just think that's absolutely just completely normal because to them, you know, the worst thing that could ever happen, uh, for example, my dad went to a labor camp for 10 years and uh, he lived through a famine. So to him, yes, we were living in poverty, but poverty was kind of the least of his problems because he always tells me whenever I have a problem, he's like, honey, don't worry about it. It could be so, so, so much worse. So that's kind of the mindset that I've been taught growing up. When I first came to uh, Canada and immigrated, I was amazed by everything. I was amazed by running water. I was amazed by hot showers. I was amazed by toilets, flushing toilets, going to the grocery store and being able to pick up any you know, fruit or vegetable that you wanted. So growing up in that background, even though my friends think it's horrible, to me, it gave me this amazing perspective that I think a lot of immigrants have just because you, when you live in another country, you, you see all the uh, advantages that you have now once you're able to immigrate and you become very, very grateful for everything that you have. Yeah, it's almost like from my experience, immigrant families seem to understand the American dream or, or the Canadian dream as it was for your family more deeply than traditional American families. They, they just kind of grasp the idea that you can achieve something that seemed impossible. And most of us here that have grown up in America, grown up in the States in a normal suburban community or something like that, like it's something that we don't really understand very fully. 
Oh yeah. And my teacher was, was pretty surprised at me too. Cause whenever I drew a, a crayon drawing of uh, like the sun or the sky, the sky, I would always color yellow. And then she would be like, no, the sky is blue. And I'm like, really? I don't know. I, I remember the sky as being yellow. And she's like, go look outside. I look outside the sky is blue. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. It's not thick with the smoke of progress, which is what I remember oh from China. Right. Cause that, that's just like, that's your normal. And it, it kind of made me realize that poverty is relative. Everything is relative. And when you're not even aware that, you know, there's amazing things outside that country when you immigrate, then you end up really being grateful for everything. I think of these stories as just like very amusing, stepping back from it. And I feel like it, it, it really gives me a perspective. Like whenever I run into any obstacles, I, I just think of what we actually lived through and how much my dad had it even worse and how other people in the world have it so much worse. It kind of retrained my brain into thinking of obstacles as challenges rather than obstacles. Well, you just mentioned your dad. And I think you talking about what your dad went through as being even more severe than kind of what you experienced, which from our perspective is just incredibly severe, right? Growing up on 44 cents a day, finding toys in a, in a medical waste dump. But you said at one point in your book, you said, my dad mentioned that his only wish was to be full when he talks about living under Mao's regime. So what was it like for him uh, seeing it through his eyes as you guys went from living in just massive intense poverty in China to living in a first world country like Canada? Oh, yeah. So my dad has this very gritty type of attitude that whenever there's a problem, it's really not a problem. To give you an example, um, the high school that I went to at one point during an exam, somebody was suspected to have brought in a gun. So they actually shut down the school in the middle of the exam and they had everybody evacuated. They even had the SWAT team come in and kick down the doors and secure wow. the building. Yeah. And have us wait outside in the uh, school parking lot to make sure everyone's safe. And then when I actually called my dad about it, he's like, is the exam on? If the exam is still on, you shouldn't leave. You need to stay there. Right. So his mentality <laughs> and, you know, even at work a couple of years ago, when there was an earthquake in the city that he worked in, in, in Ottawa, and then everybody else like ran away, which is what they're supposed to do. He actually ran back into the building because he needed to finish his work. So my dad <laughs> is really abnormal in how he deals with problems and the way that he thinks about life. And part of the reason for that is because he at one point was put into a labor camp for 10 years. He al almost died multiple times because he was rolling these boulders uphill and then one rolled back down and, and nearly killed him. And then before that, he lived through a famine in which millions of people starved to death. And the fact that he was even able to survive the famine was just a miracle in of itself. So his view of problems is not really like a normal person's view of problems. He's just kind of like, you're, you're not like immediately dying. Okay. That's not really a problem then. <laughs> Tough it out. What a departure though, right? From what he was experiencing and what you experienced there in China compared to the first world essentially in Canada. You know, and you mentioned some of the things that sort of surprised you, you know, when you did come to Canada, just being able to buy fruit any time of the year at any time of the day, just going, you know, into the store. Do you remember any other things like that that stood out to you that were sort of parts of culture shock as you immigrated to Canada? Oh, yeah. Just like freshly mowed lawns. How much space each person had? Because in China, it's lots of people sharing one room. We kind of did more of a communal uh, living thing where you, you have a lot of families. They're all sharing one bathroom. They're, all, they're sharing like a 
it's not even a kitchen because there was no fridge. Like a fridge was just like you put stuff in cold water and that's how you keep it fresh. And just how much space there is per person was mind blowing. I couldn't speak English. So, and the thing is um, Chinese culture makes it so that you need to save face. So you shouldn't, you don't want to be embarrassed that you can't speak the language. So I didn't understand half the things that people were saying to me, but I would nod and pretend to understand. And there were times in which there was like a, a fence that said no climbing. I couldn't understand that. Somebody was telling me not to under, not to climb it. And I said, I understand because I didn't know what that meant. And then I just climbed it. So just like <laughs> completely disregarding of rules. And uh, because I didn't understand English, but I had to pretend that I did understand it in order to save face. Right. So that was like a big culture shock. Like Admitting to your faults and admitting that you have a weakness is actually a strength in Western culture. But in Chinese culture, Culture, that's actually looked upon as very negative. It's very embarrassing and you, you should be hiding all your weak points and any kind of problems that you're having, you should be shoving under the rug. So that was very difficult for me to grasp. And then just learning how to use a toilet. I kid you not, I in the airport, I was scared of going into the stall because I thought I would not be able to ever come out again because <laughs> I didn't know how to use it. Because, you know, where I grew up, it's basically just a hole in the ground. Like That's, you know, farm living and everybody had that kind of background. And then cleanliness and, you know, food safety, all those things, I had no clue what that was. Like, I was like, oh, you know, the, the water doesn't have to be boiled before you drink it. And, you know, you're not supposed to mix the meat with the vegetables. Like, I had no clue any of these things. Yeah, so that, that was quite the culture shock. And pretending to speak English, that got me into quite a bit of trouble. <laughs> so, so it's interesting that you went from this completely different life in China to, to life in Canada. But you, you mentioned in the book that you were grateful for the way that you grew up. You're grateful for those difficulties that you experienced in your early childhood. What makes you say that you're grateful for that? I am 100% certain that there's no way I would be retired and traveling the world right now and being a millionaire if I didn't actually had if I didn't grow up the way I did because I was able to see everything with a different perspective that a lot of my peers didn't have. So if I didn't have to struggle for money, I wouldn't have made the decision to pick a career that actually supports me. I would have just blindly followed my passion. If I didn't have this drive to be able to be independent and make money something that is really precious and make strategic decisions, I would have just said, oh, you know what? If it doesn't work out, my dad will come save me or the government will come save me. And it's all going to work out in the end. From my perspective, it's not going to work out. You have to make it work out because coming from that background in China, the government is not there to help you and you don't have a safety net. And you know you don't want to drag your parents back into poverty if it doesn't work out, if you get the wrong degree. So I think that mentality, the scarcity mindset that I developed out of that, I attribute a lot of it to where I am today. Without that kind of mindset, I would have just blindly done whatever it made sense, which was going into the creative writing and writing a novel and that would not have worked out so well because as I found out while I was doing that on the side when I was an engineer, that maximum I would have been able to make maybe $5,000 a year because 93% of books published in the U.S. sell less than 1,000 copies. It's, it's a very sad statistic, but it's the truth. Well, so Christy, do you have thoughts then on how folks that grew up with so much more than you did, like how can they, how can we right, cultivate maybe more of a scarcity mindset and use that to, to get ourselves ahead? 
Yeah, I think part of it is just being aware. It, you actually have it easier if you, you know, had a, a leg up because, as I talk about in the book, the scarcity mindset does have downsides later on when you are going into investing, and then fear holds you back, right? So the fact that you don't have that fear gives you a leg up. But in in the book, we talk about understanding invisible waste, right? Like how many things people just like a lot of fruit and vegetables get discarded every year just because they're misshapen or they're discolored. And then people buy a lot of clothes in their closets that they don't wear. And one of the exercises I talk about is, you know, take a take a hanger and put a piece of tape on it. And every time you wear something in your closet, put it to the right of that hanger. And over time, you'll be able to see how much of your closet you don't actually wear. Because uh, statistically, I think 70 to 80% of closets are just clothes that people buy and forget about. So there's so much waste that people are not realizing. And I think being aware and having these constraints, I mean, it's not about depravity. It's about having constraints to be more creative, right? And one of the things that helped us a lot, and you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect either, despite growing up in poverty, I did have something I like to call the uh, immigrant rebound effect, which is when I started buying coach purses. And I started thinking like, you know, I have money now, I, you know, I need to have status. And, you know, more about that safe face thing, the, the Chinese culture thing that I was talking about. But then I realized over time that that was just not the happiness level over time, it's the hedonic treadmill that you don't really become happy after the fifth bag as much as you bought when it was like the first bag, right? So realizing that a lot of this waste can be mitigated if you set constraints. So, you know, now that we travel with two bags around the world, that that is a really good constraint because we only bring along a week of clothing. Like that's all we own, a week of clothing. And I'm perfectly happy. Like I don't need any more of that. And it actually helps me have mental space because now I don't have to think about what to wear as much. I don't have to worry about maintaining it. I don't have to dry clean it, all those things. So sometimes constraints can actually be very, very helpful. It's just if you are using the constraints too much later on that, you know, you, you become like too worried about fear and all that stuff. So scarcity mindset created that constraint and it allowed me to be more creative. But then over time, you need to switch over to the freedom mindset. Mm, that's really good stuff. Yeah. And I, I think scarcity mindset can kind of have a, a negative connotation in our current culture. And so I appreciate that, that there is something good in your opinion and that you can bring to the table. Because I think for, for all of us, cultivating a little bit more of a scarcity mindset can be helpful, but maybe just up into a certain point, like you mentioned, right? Exactly. Um, so, all right. So Christy, we've got some more questions for you. In particular, Christy has some really interesting analytical thoughts about how you pursue higher education. And we're going to get to more with Christy right after the break. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. 
Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Spring cleaning is kind of a, an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember, because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs and it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. All right, we are back from the break. And Christy, let's talk about uh, first world problems. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right? There's there a Reddit post recently where an Iowa couple... Uh, they're making $500,000 a year, and they were having trouble sticking to a budget, which sounds, obviously, that sounds kind of silly. But you have folks reaching out to you for advice, and they think that you know, they don't spend very much. You know, they say, like, I can't think of anything that I can cut back on. Uh, what is your reaction to those folks? What do you say to them? Uh, I call them giant babies and then I never talk to them again. <laughs> now, <laughs> see, what, what that made me realize is that, again, everything is relative, right? Like, even though I grew up in poverty, my thought was, oh my God, it's so much worse. At least I didn't have to go to a concentration camp and I didn't have to go through famine. But then other people who could be earning $500,000 a year, they're looking at their peers and they're like, well, I'm not earning a million dollars and those people are better off, right? I don't have a private island yet. Yeah, exactly. Private <laughs> islands, like that's where you've got it made. So it really is relative. And the thing that we're trying to help people understand is that just because you're in an expensive city doesn't mean you have to retire in an expensive city. 
right? So there are people um, that we've helped, readers that, you know, there's a couple that worked in San Francisco where everything is notoriously expensive and their rent was over $2,000. But when we talked to them, we found out that they can actually work remotely. And uh, one of them doesn't even have to go into work more than once or twice a year. One of them even speaks Spanish. So I was thinking, well, you guys like to travel. What if you guys moved down to Oaxaca, Mexico? Like, what if you became nomadic? You, your boss wouldn't even notice because the time zone difference is really not, it's like only an hour or two apart. And you would be able to bank the difference because now your cost of living is significantly lower. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. So they tried it out and they reduced their rent down to $400 a month in Oaxaca. And soon afterwards, I think around two years after that, they've actually both become financially independent and they're doing what we're doing, which is packed everything up in two bags and they're traveling the world. So it really is about opening your mind up, right? Because it's all relative. Poor people, they say that if you make you know $300,000 a year, but you're in a neighborhood that's like million dollar uh, earnings, you feel poor. But if you're in a neighborhood maybe, maybe making $50,000 and everybody else is making $30,000, you feel incredibly rich. Right. So it really is about your, your perspective and everybody thinks of it as being relative to everyone else. So whenever people write in, they're like, I can't cut a sing- single thing. First of all, I tell them, you know, it could be so much, so much worse. Usually that doesn't help because they're like, you know, my problems are my problems. It doesn't matter whether right. it can be worse or not. Right. So then you kind of work with them to say, like, what else can you do? Right. Do you have to actually retire in the same city? Maybe focus on the three most expensive categories, which is uh, housing, transportation, and eating out, right? Rather than just spending on everything, like I have to have the best of everything, optimize what's important to you. And then the other things, maybe they're not so important. Maybe you don't have to have a Netflix account and a Hulu account and HBO and every single type there is. Just watch one at a time. Just like minor things like that. And why are you paying so many bank fees? That, that doesn't really add to your, to your happiness. And when we go down that route, people start realizing that, hey, you know what? I have just been turning my brain off and following everybody else. Maybe if I just become more efficient with this, I'll actually find a way out. And they do. That's awesome. Yeah. By the way, the funniest line in the book, I think, was when you said you wanted diabetes. So can you tell (laughs) our listeners why you would say that? Great. Now I sound insane. Thanks for that, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, if they're going to read the book anyway, they would have found out, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. The insanity will all come out later anyway. Okay. So my mom, uh, when I was growing up, she worked as a dishwasher at a restaurant. So one of the things she would do is this was a buffet. So they would throw out these like giant buckets of peach syrup. You know, those like canned peaches, like Del Monte peaches or whatever it is. Right. It's like more sugar than peach. But like the liquid part of it, because they would put that into the buffet and then they would dump out the liquid part because nobody's drinking that. That's going to give you diabetes. And then my mom, (laughs) my mom would always bring that home because she's like, that's such a waste, you know. And like back in our village, we would think that this is the best thing ever. We would give it to all the kids. So I was really happy that she brought that home because I just started drinking that all the time. Like that was my favorite treat because it was free and it was delicious. Because to us, if somebody who can afford, you know, a lot of sugar and things like this must be rich. Because back when I was a child, I thought a can of Coke was the most amazing thing ever, because that's not something that my village could ever afford. That's something that rich people drank. So I was thinking like, oh, wow, I'm going to be able to drink all the sugar like rich people. And then one day I'll have diabetes and then I can go back to my village and people will be like, whoa, wow, she's really made it. She has diabetes. You know how much money you have to have to buy sugar and drink Coke to get diabetes? So, so that was my childhood dream because I'm, I'm a weird kid. 
<laughs> well, I mean, that just says something about consumption in, in the world that we live in and in, in the first world that we live in, right? And not only, you know, it's for, when it comes to consumption, just the amount of money we spend on it and the amount of money that we go into debt in order to achieve that sort of level of consumption. And so on that note, how did growing up in China for you shape your view towards debt specifically? You know, a lot of people write into us about debt, student debt. That's one of the worst things, especially for Americans. Consumer debt, mortgages. The worst is consumer debt because that's the highest interest rate. People write in, they have, they're, they're paying interest rate of 15 to 20% for consumer debt. And, and I usually tell them, kill that debt ASAP. It's like a vampire. It will suck you dry. And the thing that happens, so to compare and contrast be, between my Chinese culture and Western culture is that growing up, I had never seen a credit card. There was no such thing. I think China didn't even have credit cards until like much, much later, like many, many years later. And so when you actually want something, you have to work for it. And if you don't have the money for it, you can't buy it. So there's one upside to that in that um, what debt does is it distorts the connection between time and money. So what debt does is it doesn't make you realize this is how many hours I had to work for this thing. You just think about, oh, that's future me's problem. That's like me down the road five years from now. I don't have to worry about that. And then what ends up happening is you just dig yourself deeper and deeper into a hole because that interest keeps compounding, right? It's the opposite of investing in that that interest works against you and compounds continuously as you you know, just pay the minimum and you don't actually pay off the debt. So growing up without access to debt helped me realize that when money is related to time, if you don't put in the time to earn the money, you won't realize its real true value. So this is why I, I tell our readers, pay off the highest interest first, because mathematically that's going to hurt you a lot if you don't pay that off. And it's it's a vampire. You really need to get off, get that vampire off your back because there's no point in investing and getting, let's say, a conservative 6% return over 10 or 15 years if your credit card debt is 20%. It's like trying to swim and you've got this giant boulder on your leg dragging you down and you're drowning. It doesn't help at all. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I wanted to ask you kind of pull a Guy Raz question here from how I built this. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, for, for, I, for some reason, I want to know, based on all you've said, there's so much hard work involved. There's so much self-discipline. What role do you feel that luck played in your family getting out of a difficult situation in China and then getting ahead in Canada? Do you think luck was involved in any way, form or fashion here? Or, or is this purely kind of a, a hard work story, in your opinion? I think everybody who is living in the Western world basically have, has luck, right? Like if you're born in the, you're born in Canada, US, Europe, you, you basically won the lottery because so many other people in the world can't make it this far. And I do think that one of the reasons we were able to get here is because my dad was able to immigrate to Canada. And okay, there's actually a weird story behind this too. So originally my dad visited Canada as a visiting student and he was expected to come back home. And me and my mom was kind of held as like, we're kind of seen as de facto hostages in China because China wants students to go back, collect the knowledge and come back and make China a better country and use that knowledge for ourselves. So he was always expected to come back to China um, because his family is there. So, you know, if you don't come back, something bad's going to happen to them. And so it wasn't until um, Tiananmen Square happened that he was actually able to stay in Canada because during Tiananmen Square, there's a lot of press there. And when they killed 3,000 students for protesting, the world knew about it. 
And a lot of students said, I'm not going to return to a country in which the government can just kill me at any point for saying, you know, for protesting and, and having my rights. So then at that point, because so many people around the world knew about this incident, they dropped it and they let him immigrate to Canada. So that is definitely luck based because a lot of people were stuck in China and they weren't able to immigrate. And then like, what are your thoughts as far as luck, though, once you arrive in Canada? Because I go ahead and state like the, the subtitle of your book involves the word luck, mm-hmm. <laughs> where, you know, yeah. where it says no luck. And right. so certainly there's a portion of your story, I guess, where, where luck is involved. Oh, but, absolutely. I yeah. mean, it seems like you credit hard work. What are, your, what are your additional thoughts on kind of getting ahead? Yeah. So when I say no luck, like everybody had some sort of luck, right? If you were born and born without any kind of disabilities or like mental disabilities or like, you know, abusive parents or any kind of addiction and things like that, then yeah, you you definitely have to have a little bit of that in order to get to financial independence. But when I say no luck uh, involved, it means it's reproducible. If it's not reproducible, for example, if somebody started the next Snapchat, I'm not going to be able to go start Snapchat. It already exists, right? And if I if somebody bought Apple stock back when it was, you know, $10, $5 and they made it through that, that's not reproducible. That is based on luck because there's no skill involved. It just happened to have the right timing. So when I say luck, it doesn't mean like no luck whatsoever. I mean, just being able to immigrate to Canada and being, you know, of sound mind and not being born disabled. That's already luck. But the no luck part refers mostly to the fact that you don't have to hit a home run with the stock market or or the housing market and you don't have to have started a company that just happened to take off it's a reproducible formula that people can follow regardless of what economic background they started with because i started at the bottom 1% of the world and then i became the top 1% Chrissy, i love your thoughts on education you're super super analytical about how you approach decisions on further education. So how did you choose a career path that you thought made the most sense for you? You mentioned earlier that you kind of wanted to become a writer, but you ditched that because it just didn't make financial sense. So fill us in. For sure. So I always liked writing. And one of the reasons for that is I went to the library a lot because my parents couldn't afford cable. So I developed a love for reading and I developed a love for writing. So it was kind of my childhood dream to become an author. And then when it came time for me to pick a career, I really needed to sit down and think about this because my parents were still supporting people back home, our family, and I didn't want to you know, have it not work out and then have to live at home and have them pay my bills. Uh, so I looked at three different career choices. My number one choice was creative writing because that was my first love. And then my second one uh, was computer engineering. And the third one was accounting. So I did something I call in the book called pot score, which is the pay over tuition. And what that means is you take how much you would get paid over the minimum wage and you divide that by how much tuition costs. And that will give you a return on investment for the money that you're spending on this degree. So for every dollar that you put in, how much X will it be able to return with this degree? So a creative writing was actually horrible. <laughs> You're not actually getting paid that much over minimum wage, but then the, the um, degree itself was still quite expensive. So when I did that analysis, computer engineering came out to be on top. So I knew that even though it was not something that it was going to come naturally to me, I was going to have to work way harder than if I had gotten a creative writing degree. It was definitely the best choice because afterwards I would be able to pay off any student loans I had and I would be able to have a leg up to be able to make money right away and support myself. So that's how I made the decision to pick computer engineering. And the thing is, that doesn't mean you have to just give up your dreams because that's horrible. It means that you don't have to, like, it doesn't make sense to follow your passion blindly. It's about following your passion, but not yet. So 
I followed the money first. And then crazily enough, after we became FI, the writing part came on its own. So we started writing the blog. We started helping people. We started running a free workshop on how to invest. And then an editor from Penguin actually came to us to write a book because she was a fan of our blog, which is unheard of. Because when we were writing the children's book, we got 200 rejections from literary agents. There's no way that the publishing industry comes knocking at your door. I thought it was a scam at first. (laughs) Can you first send $5,000 to Africa, please? Yeah, exactly. I I was stalking her on LinkedIn. I was Googling her name. I was like, there's no way. Somebody's playing a joke on me. But yeah, this actually came about. This Penguin book deal came about because the editor actually thought that we were being very helpful. And she thought that this information would be very helpful for other people. So that goes to show that if you follow your passion blindly, it's not a strategic decision versus if you do the pot score and you follow the practical decision. And it doesn't even have to be, you know, it's not about earning the most money. Because when I did that analysis for doctors, in terms of pot score, it was actually pretty bad because you have to go to school for 10 years and you do make a lot of money, but not that much more than engineers. Looking at a plumber, for example, who only has to go to school associate's degree for two years, and they're coming out ahead of the doctor because plumbers can make you know, six-figure salaries in big cities like New York and Chicago, and they can get to FI a lot faster. So this strategic decision is one of the key points in how we actually got to FI because the, the money that I put into the tuition, I immediately earned it back. And then that helped us be able to bank a good enough um, difference between how much we get paid and how much we spend to get to FI. I like that. I mean, I, I love that you were able to find something that worked for you where you you sought after something that made sense, that was practical, but that you know you were in a position where you can incorporate your passion. I mean, like passion is such a hard thing to quantify, right? Like you've got your, your POT, your POT score. It's super tangible. You see a number, you rank all the numbers. Passion is incredibly abstract. What if somebody is trying to find their passion, pursue that, but at the same time, be practical here and now? Do you have any advice for folks uh, who are trying to you know, essentially find that balance? Oh, yeah. So one of the advantages of working on a passion project on the side or doing some sort of uh, side hustle is that you know you look at... So the things we talk about in the book is the 4% rule, which is like you take your expenses and you multiply by the inverse of 4%, which is 25, to figure out what your, what your FI number is, the number that states that you're financially independent and then you can live off the for- portfolio, right? And the thing is, when you have a side gig that's making money, a, a passion pro- project, you can actually reduce the size of that portfolio. So for example, when I said, oh, writing will make me $5,000 a year. If I can earn that every year, that actually reduces the portfolio I need by $125,000, right? Because now I don't need to passively generate 4%, which is $5,000 a year, because that's actually what I can do with my passion. So you can actually use the passion project on the side to get to FI faster. And that can actually be something you love to do afterwards, right? Another thing I could have done is do some sort of writing thing, but then more practical, like technical technical writing. Maybe it wouldn't have paid as much as um, computer engineering, but it still would have been practical. That would have taken a bit longer, but maybe that's a way to go to FI, right? So you, you can pivot your passion towards something that's more practical, but still allows you to do that. Or you could use the pot score to figure out the career and then do a passion project on the side to get you to FI faster and have something to do in retirement. I love though that anybody who's thinking about this at least and thinking about their education in terms of cost and payoff, that there's a a simple formula to figure that out that you kind of created. So that's really helpful. Christy, after the break, we really want to ask you in particular about your travels and how you're able to travel 
basically across the world full time on the cheap. And we'll get to that right after the break. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney 
for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. All right, we're back from the break. We're talking with Christy Shen, who has just this amazing story that we've been diving into. And uh, Christy, in your book, you outline how you were able to amass basically a small fortune, a large fortune to a lot of us, really, uh, by investing. And you even lay out your precise strategy in the book, which I really appreciate. The exact funds you used, kind of how you've done this, everything. So from the beginning of this, did you just want to be able to quit work early? Or did you have like a bigger goal in mind while you were doing these years and years of saving and investing intentionally? Yeah. So uh, my original plan before we, we did this whole FI thing was actually just be like everyone else, which was get the, you know, get the job, buy the house, work until you're 65 and retire with a pension because that's the script that everybody follows. But then you didn't quite work out that way because houses were way too expensive. Um, people were getting let go left and right at my work. So it wasn't exactly stable. And then just watching everybody work so hard, it really wasn't the path that we decided to go on. And then after we became FI, it was just something that completely unexpected. We did the math, we learned about investing, and then we actually were able to retire in our 30s. And then after we retired, I thought we would just do some sort of you know, victory lap around the world because we never had a gap year. So I figured we would travel for one year and then come back and settle somewhere in Canada or the States. What I didn't realize was that I thought we were going to spend $75,000 to $100,000 that year. We ended up spending $40,000 traveling the world. And the big reason for that was that when you actually go on vacation, you're tied to having to you know, buy an expensive vacation package because you don't have time to think about it. And then you're doing these touristy things that everybody else is doing. But by living like a local and we stayed in Airbnbs, we took local transportation, we did local things and hanging out with our Airbnb hosts, uh, it actually helped us save a ton of money. And it also taught us that not every country is created equal when you travel. If you balance expensive places like the UK uh, with inexpensive places like Poland or Portugal or Thailand, for example, it uh, allows you to kind of life hack travel so that your expenses are within $40,000. So to give you, give you an example of Portugal, when we used to go on vacation, we only knew about Lisbon because that's where all the tour, uh, the, you know, like the cruise ships went and that's where everybody was going. So with a vacation package with a cruise, we would spend close to $2,000 for a week. Um, for two people. So that was quite expensive. And that's not including flight. And then when we actually went back, um, we discovered other places in Portugal that I had never even heard of, like Coimbra or Aveiro or Porto or Lagos. And it was actually very inexpensive. Like we rented a condo that was just 15 minutes from the beach in Lagos. And it only cost us around 900 US dollars for the month. And when I actually did some research, I found out that the average salary for the Portuguese was just 1,000 to 1,500 euros a month, right? So people actually have to survive on their earnings. So locals actually don't live lavish lifestyles and it doesn't cost them uh, you know, $1,000 a week. It's more like $1,000 a month. So it really is about opening your eyes up when you actually travel and realizing that travel is less expensive than staying home. And that completely blew my mind because there's no way I would have ever thought that was possible. Even if you had told me straight up back when I was um, traveling for the first year, I, I had to actually go to the countries themselves and then live that there like a local and then track my expenses and realize, hey, we could travel the world forever because this is much less expensive than actually going back home. 
Yeah, that's amazing. So basically traveling like a local as opposed to traveling like a tourist, it sounds like there's just an incredibly massive difference in the amount of money that travel costs you if you do that. Oh yeah, for sure. And also going to the off off the beaten path places. Instead of just going to London, Paris, New York, like everybody else where the prices are all inflated, you could discover places in Poland. You could discover places like Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania in Eastern Europe where nobody is really going. And then the cost of living is way lower and you don't have to deal with crowds. So number one, traveling like a local. And number two, balancing expensive places with inexpensive places to um, make your budget so much lower than it would be back home. Awesome. I love that. That's a great tip, Christy. Earlier, you mentioned uh, remote working for some of your different clients and folks that you guys work with. You know, it's just so prominent these days. Are you and Bryce, are y'all working yourselves while you're abroad? The funny thing is we're, we're joking. Like we, we were retired, but then because of this book, which came about because yeah. the editor actually convinced us to write a book. At, at first I was like, this is going to be a lot of work. And I was right. I, I joke that, are we really retired or just tired? Because there's just so many interviews that we've been in recently that I, you know, I turned to him and I was like, you know, normal people actually get the weekend off. <laughs> like what's going on here, right? I think what happens in retirement is you end up doing things you love to do and you do it for free. And then when you actually do it so well, people are actually throwing money at you to help them. When I think about how this applies to regular people, geographic arbitrage has opened up all these doors that we don't realize, right? You know, when we're struggling with problems like job insecurity and we're struggling with problems with like unaffordable housing, we don't think about this magical key that can be used to open so many doors like geographic arbitrage. Because if you can find a way to you know, do a side hustle or find a way to do remote work, you can grow that gap between your expenses and your spending, right? So uh, a lot of people think I'm in a big city, I make a lot of money, but everything in, everything goes in, everything goes out. But if you can find a way to remote work, then you can hack the system by moving to an inexpensive town. And then that gap between how much you earn and how much you spend is huge. And then that helps you get to FI a lot faster. So when you meet fellow travelers, when you guys are abroad, how do you find that some of those people are making money as they are traveling? Well, there's actually a group of people we met called the World Schoolers. This was actually quite interesting because so we met this woman who was traveling with her son, 10 year old son in um, Tulum, Mexico. She was traveling in like February, March. And I was like, wait, how are you? You've been traveling for over a month. How, how did you take him out of school? This is not the usual summer months. And she said, oh, we're part of something called World Schoolers. And I was like, what? That's a real thing? Oh my God. Okay. You have to sit down and tell me everything. So she told us that there was this community of uh, 40,000 people on Facebook that they actually travel with their kids. And a lot of them make money online doing you know, programming or freelance writing, or some of them are real estate investing. And the money that they make like again, that gap between how much they earn and how much they save is huge because they're living in Mexico or you know people who are in Australia, they're driving around and camping all over Australia and they don't actually have a home. And the kids actually learn different languages. A lot of them are multilingual because they've lived in so many different places. They know Some of them know how to speak Mandarin. Some of them know how to speak uh, Spanish. And a lot of the, the learnings comes from outside of the classroom. Like instead of learning about the Vietnam War, They actually went to Vietnam and talked to a war veteran and found out that in Vietnam, they don't call it the Vietnam War. They call it the American War, right? It's just like things like this that you would never be able to learn in a classroom. This is an entire community of people who are using geographic arbitrage, who are making money online and traveling with their kids. And then they're able to spend all their time with their children rather than, you know, working stressful jobs and have to put their kids 
uh, like having somebody else take care of their kids. Yeah, Christy, that you know, you talking about geographic arbitrage, it makes me think of my father-in-law. Actually, he. Uh, I don't know if he had a pamphlet or what, but I know shortly after he retired, he was talking a lot about Panama because uh, I think Panama has is one of those spots that a lot of retirees look at. And Expats love it. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and he was seriously considering doing something like that and, and talking with a buddy of his from college. So yeah, definitely don't overlook that. But for you, you know, what has been the hardest thing about retiring early? Like it all sounds like super nice and a, like a quick Yahoo article or something, right? <laughs> but traveling incessantly and, and being away from family and friends, have you found that to be hard? Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, when I actually gave my notice, I thought I would be ecstatic because at that point, I really hated my job and it was so stressful. But I actually had a min- miniature panic attack after I handed in my notice because I was thinking, what have I done? Right. And not just from a money perspective, but from an identity perspective, like you spend 10 years building up this identity as an engineer. Then you think, what am I going to do next? I'm going to be a retiree. Like, does that make any sense? It actually took at least six months for me to decompress and get out of that mindset of I always have to be doing something and I am my job. And one of the things that actually helped was us packing everything up into two backpacks and starting to travel because other travelers never ask, what do you do? They always ask, where are you from and where are you going? So that kind of switched me from that mindset of like, so good. yeah, right? Like the go, 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 you are your job. They don't care what your job is. They want to know more about you as a person. So that really helped me shift from that identity crisis into like, oh yeah, okay. You know, this is what the sunset looks like. I actually know I've actually been able to see a sunset for the first time in 10 years, right? And I can actually relax and I don't have to be rushing places and and things like that. What was hard though, like there's two things that was very hard. One was my family and friends were just didn't understand what we were doing, especially my parents. The first year of travel, my dad kept sending me emails with job postings saying, you need to go back to work. This is not enough money. How am I supposed to tell my friends what it is that you do? Like, I can't just tell them my daughter's a bump. Get back to work. Yeah, there's so much honor, right? Like that's what you were talking yes. about earlier, sort of in the, in the Asian culture. I'm half Korean. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of pressure there behind what you do and your performance and, and what kind of value that you bring to the world. So I totally understand that. Yeah. And it reflects back on your parents, right? Like what you do, it's not about individualism. In, in Eastern cultures, it's about like the collective whole. So what I do reflects off of my parents, right? And you know their upbringing and all that. So they were embarrassed and they didn't know what to tell their friends. And they were really worried about me running out of money. And then also, you know, the the friendships that you've built over time, like you're going to be on the road and building new relationships, but those have to end, right? Because you're moving from place to place. So what I found over time in dealing with these two uh, challenges, number one, the first year that we left, our family and friends were like, okay, well, have fun in a year and then come back. And I'm sure you'll be begging for your job back. Right. And then the second year they were like, wait, you're still traveling and you haven't run out of money. Well, that's because the stock market is doing well. It's just luck. And then the third year, it's like, what? You're still traveling? Hmm. Tell me more about this financial independence. How does that work? And then the fourth year, they're like, can you look at my investments and my retirement funds? And they're like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So what you do is you lead by example rather than try to tell people what you're doing or preach at them because it doesn't work. Right. And then with the friendships that you know, you develop friendships on the road and you have to give them up while you're traveling. Well, what we've decided to do over time is that we've actually slowed down. Initially, we were moving every two days. You know, we wouldn't stay in a place for more than a week because we wanted to 
visit as many countries as possible. But now that we've kind of gotten in the groove, we kind of have a system that we put in, we tend to kind of go back between um, a few countries in Europe, North America, and, um, and Asia. And we've actually created communities that we visit periodically throughout the year. And so the world kind of becomes one city in that you're visiting some friends like for a couple of months, like maybe three months and then another three months. So like every quarter you move and then you have four different communities around the world that you're actually keeping in contact with. And you see your family every summer instead of freezing to death in the winter when you come back to Canada. You know, there's a lot of challenges that come with traveling. But once you figure out your groove, it's it's amazing. That's so cool. Well, Christy, this has been such an excellent conversation. We appreciate you taking the time and sharing not only your story, but your thoughts on so many things with us and and with our listeners. And if they want to learn a little bit more about you and what you're doing, where can they do that? Yeah. um, So if you want to find out more about our book, Quit Like a Millionaire, which outlines exactly how we did this, you can check out www.quitlikeamillionaire.com. You can also go to our blog where we run a completely free workshop. You just need to sign up with your email that teaches you how to invest from the ground up and shows exactly what we invest in. And the blog is www.millennial-revolution.com. Awesome. And we will link to both of those things in the show notes. And again, we appreciate your time. This was an awesome conversation. Yeah, Christy, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Matt, that was such a good conversation with Christy. So what was your big takeaway from this conversation? Yeah, man, what I love so much was her POT score or her POT score. I feel that's just such an intentional and mindful way to approach not only higher education, but your career for years to come. And you know, she touched on it a little bit, but it's as simple as this. You take the pay that you're going to receive above minimum wage and you divide that by the tuition cost to get the program that will allow you to get that job. Uh, an example that she gave in the book was that on average, a plumber will make about $38,000 above minimum wage. And that program will cost about $3,600 to complete to actually become a legit plumber. And when you divide that out, that POT score that you get is a little over 5, right? But she gives lots of other examples in the book as well that are a lot lower. And you'd be so surprised at some of the professions. We're talking doctors. You know, She mentioned writers, which were you know, really low. I think that was even below 1. Yeah, doctors got thrown under the bus for yeah, sure <laughs> seriously. with Christie's POT score. Yeah, I think it's helpful right, to have some sort of way to quantify how good these particular college degrees could be. And I don't think it means you have to forgo your passion. Christy always wanted to become a writer. And you know what? She's a published author now. She has a blog, but she didn't have to major in it to get there. So I thought that was really cool. I think my main takeaway from from this episode, from this conversation was Christy talking about shifting from a comparison mindset. She talked about scarcity mindset, but she just quickly mentioned shifting from this comparison mindset and just kind of doing a reframe on thinking properly about what you actually need. And I think it's so easy for us to get caught up in what the people around us have or are buying or are doing. And I know it's easy for me sometimes. So just that gentle reminder that looking around actually creates more envy, creates more desire to spend. And I need to put the kibosh on that by getting off Instagram from time to time, right? So that was one of many awesome things I got out of this conversation. Nice, man. That was a great tip. I want to get us back to our beer, which was a Blood Orange Goza by Works, And this was sent to us by listener Ray out there in Missoula, Montana. Joel, what were your thoughts on this delicious beer? Man, this beer was so good. It was very unique. It was fruity. It was tart. It was kind of briny, a little bit of that sea salt, Goza kind of style action. I love blood oranges. Blood oranges in a beer, I think, are typically magnificent. And this one pulled it off so well. 
So mad props to Ray for sending this beer out our way. It was unique and delicious. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more uh, regarding the brininess. To me, it was almost less briny and more salt or sodium. And I don't think there's maybe a real difference there. I thought that's what briny meant. Was <laughs> it salty, is, right? I guess. But I think briny... I don't know. I hear briny and I think of the ocean. There's like a different quality there. Whereas this, to me, almost tasted more like a nice stock, like a soup. Like it was savory almost. There is just a depth there that I was not expecting out of a Goza. I tasted enough fruit there to kind of brighten it up. But to me, I couldn't get past the fact that it almost felt like I was drinking uh, just a rich, really nice uh, stock, like a nice soup. Yeah. Once again, your palate never ceases to amaze me. I've never heard anyone describe a beer as being similar to a soup. So that's fun. Uh, no soup for you, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to mention too, Ray, she sent us a quick note mentioning how when she was applying for her grad program, her graduate school, she got into all of them. So Ray, congrats. That's awesome. You must be pretty smart. But she based her final decision, her and her husband, they based their final decision on the beer scene. And they were attracted to Missoula because of all that they had going on there. So I was really impressed with her dedication to craft beer. Oh, man. Yeah. I don't think I could live somewhere where there wasn't decent access to good craft beer, right? Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Smart move, Ray. All right, Matt, that's going to do it for this episode. For folks that want to check out the show notes for this one, you can check those out on our website, howtomoney.com. And if you're enjoying uh, what we're doing here at How to Money, we would really appreciate if you left us a review over on Apple Podcasts. So Joel, until next time. Best friends best out. Best friends out. Best friends out. <laughs> Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.